Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a scientist tells about her research into neurodegeneration. We are investigating interactions between profilin and another protein. What's really interesting about that protein is it's also sort of the link between do you have ALS or just neurodegeneration? A visiting ophthalmology professor discusses the potential for retinal regeneration. Humans and mammals in general, unfortunately, it cannot grow back on its own. And so what we're trying to do is stimulate the body's ability to regrow or to protect a retina. And a pair of sisters who are students at Upstate explain their involvement in the Happy Period Project. Whether you can afford to go to the store and buy a box of tampons or not, we think that everyone should have access to the products so that their daily lives are not hindered. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, a visiting ophthalmology professor discusses the potential for retinal regeneration. Then, a pair of Upstate students tell about the Happy Period Project and how they got involved. But first, a scientist explains how her research relates to Lou Gehrig's disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In this segment, we'll be taking a look at some basic scientific research into neurodegeneration. I'm talking with Dr. Jessica Hinty Radella. She's an assistant professor of cell and developmental biology and of biochemistry and molecular biology at Upstate. Thank you, Dr. Radella. Hi, thank you. When we talk about neurodegeneration, I want to have you help with a definition. Are we talking about the natural aging process or something else? So it can be the natural aging process. There's aspects of neurodegeneration that occur in aging, but generally speaking, neurodegeneration is sort of an ongoing process where um, you lose the function of your neurons, which are your brain cells or cells that like kind of directly interface with your brain. Um, and like when we think of neurodegeneration, probably like the diseases that come to the front of our mind are like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. Um, but there have been many others recently like ALS that have started to like get more attention. So it's so a lot of ALS, excuse me, is the is Lou Gehrig's disease? Yeah. So okay. ALS stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Um, that's the really sciencey name for it, but um, conventionally, it's also been referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease because he was one of the um, kind of famous people who have it, and that was when they first started to, like, characterize the disease, so it's sort of associated with his name. Okay. Do the cells that are degenerating in ALS, do they look like the cells that degenerate naturally? Um, so... So the cells that degenerate, there's a specific set of cells that degenerate in ALS, and those are called motor neurons. So these are the, the cells that directly interface between your brain and the muscles in your body. So if you think of Lou Gehrig and, and people that you might have seen, um, like Pete Frades, who is the person behind um, the Ice Bucket Challenge, a lot of times these, these people are, um, they end up like wheelchair bound. And, and ultimately, the patients um, end up dying because their muscles atrophy so much because they're not getting the signals from their brain um, that their body basically shuts down. Um, so is that what your lab is focused on? So we're not looking directly at patients right now, but we're looking at what happens in, in basic neuronal-like cells um, during this process. So there's so many things that your cell does. And in ALS and neurodegeneration in general, um, we don't know the timing of any of these things. Like the way that your proteins get made becomes different in these diseases or it stops working. Sometimes you have 
proteins that you don't need anymore. So your cell actually has like a recycling mechanism. And sometimes that goes haywire. Um, sometimes like even making um, DNA and RNA to express proteins and genes that your cell needs to do different processes. Um, sometimes that goes wild. And we don't really understand like what comes first. We just know right now that many of the things a cell does are all involved. Can you talk to me about how proteins and cells work together? You mentioned protein, and I'm used to thinking about protein as a, a meat or egg or something that you eat that's got protein in it, but yeah. that's not what you're talking about, right? It's a different right. kind? Right. So a protein is a basic molecule that exists in your cells, and they do all kinds of different things. So the proteins that we study um, actually have some pretty cool properties. So first of all, there's a couple of set of proteins that, that we're really interested in. Um, they're called um, cytoskeletal proteins, and that sounds a little bit crazy, but they're called that because um, they actually make something that's analogous to the skeleton in your body. They do that for the cell. So those proteins are called um, actin and microtubules. So act, and when actin you, and yep. microtubulin, the, they help give the cell its structure? Right. So actin and microtubules give the cell structure. They have these, like, they adopt this, like, filamentous form. Um, and microtubules are, like, bigger. And they sort of, if you if you wanted to think of this in food terms, because everyone, like, feel like, likes to eat, right? Mm -hmm. um, microtubules are like bucatini pasta. They're actually like hollow tubes in your cell. And actin is sort of like cooked spaghetti. It's smaller and it's floppier. And even though it's like floppier, these two things like work together to, to build like the cell, basically. They're like the structural support of the cell. Like if you were an architecture, you know, student, it would be like the beam. Um, if you wanted to think of it in the context of, you know, just in a cell, a cytoskeleton, if you have a nerve cell, the cytoskeleton um, is basically its road. So, like, the microtubules are, like, the major highways, and the actin would be the smaller side streets that you take to get to your house. So they're, actually, they're both the, very important for the structure. They're both very important, and they both rely on each other to get stuff done and and it's structural but it's also other things so it's easy to think of them as like a skeleton as their name sort of implies but they're also really dynamic molecules um so so it's sort of like a cytoskeleton that can constantly morph around um and on top of it if you think of it as like a road you know how with construction you can build new roads, the same sort of stuff happens, right? You can build a new path, you can break it down, you can, like, you know, recycle those materials to build a road somewhere else. If you were to zoom out and use Google Maps, right, you could sort of see, like, the skeleton of your city based on the roads. So it's sort of a similar thing in a cell. And then on top of it, there's lots of proteins um, that move around on these roads in the cell so this is like a structure just like roads are and those proteins are exactly like cars and they bring things from different places like the nucleus out into the cytoplasm and back again because i don't know by the edge of a cell if you're migrating forward you might need different building blocks than if you're in your nucleus let me remind listeners this is upstate's health link on air i'm your host amber smith and I'm talking with Dr. Jessica Hinty Radella. She's an assistant professor at Upstate, and we're talking about neurodegeneration. Now, these proteins—I'm assuming um, different proteins have different roles in different neurodegenerative diseases. Is that correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so these proteins, actin and microtubules, specifically, are involved in everything your cell does. They're the most abundant proteins on Earth. They also interface, like, like hundreds of proteins regulate these proteins on top of their complex regulation on their own, right? And so these proteins are actually the ones that start to get specifically neurodegeneration. And the one that we're really interested in, actually there's two that we're really interested in. One is called profilin, which actually is causative in a lot of diseases, but it's one of the most abundant proteins on Earth. 
And that can actually make microtubules grow faster, uh, which is sort of like so it sort of like turns up the knob to like making these structures more dynamic. And it can do that to actin as well and, and maybe facilitate the crosstalk between them. So it's sort of something that's at the interface of both of these rows that can sort of dictate what, what the cell's gonna do. Is, let, other, let me interrupt. Is that a sure. positive thing to make the microtubules and the actin grow faster? Do we want them to grow faster necessarily? Well, most of the time we want them to do whatever they normally do. So if they grow faster in some cases, that can actually cause cancer. Um, in the context of neurodegeneration, if there's just generally more microtubules polymerized, that's also not a great thing. Um, but we don't exactly know like how... Like if you fine-tune that dynamics and for how long by prosalin, how that actually like translates to neurodegeneration. This is something that's totally new. In fact, the only like the strongest link we have of prosalin to neurodegeneration is actually with ALS, where specific mutations that are found in families that um, pass these ALS genes on um, have been found in that protein and somehow they um, cause ALS um, more frequently. So they're, they're causative in ALS. Um, and in that case, when you lose your protein, like, like, well, when you have this mutation, the protein loses the ability to regulate microtubules. And because, hmm. and so the microtubules actually slow down. So, it, um, you know, they speed up. If you completely lose this protein, the microtubules can both slow down and speed up. So it's a little bit confusing. But what that really means is it's just very complicated, and cells are very sensitive to the levels of prosilin that, that are around them. So it's actually a tricky problem for scientists, but we have ways to solve it. <laughs> now, and you've got some project in your lab that is directly tied to ALS and neurodegenerative diseases, right? Yes. So we are, we are actually looking at the details of the interaction between prothalin and actin and microtubules um, to see exactly what it's doing to those dynamics. And we can do that in a test tube. So we just purify the protein and use uh, a really fancy form of microscopy to, to actually look and see what happens um, directly to those cytosolical filaments. Um, we also are investigating interactions between prothalin and another um, protein, which has over 50 mutations in ALS, and that's called TDP43. So T TDP43, what, can you describe what that is? Yeah, so it doesn't have a particularly interesting name for like what that abbreviation is. It actually stands for TAR-DNA binding protein 43. Um, but what's really interesting about that protein, besides that it has 50 mutations with ALS, is it's also sort of the link between do you have ALS or just neurodegeneration? Like that's a big open question right now. Um, the phenotype that we see in patients, the only way to really diagnose ALS is to rule out everything else first because we can't even, we don't even know what are the specific things that go wrong in ALS versus other forms of neurodegeneration. And TDP43 is a beautiful example of that. So um, if, even without disease, if you're over the age of 80, which, you know, some of us are lucky, lucky to get that far, it turns out that this protein can start to sort of aggregate in your cytoplasm just there normally. So somehow it's part of the aging process. We don't really know how. Normally, this protein lives perfectly happily in your nucleus. And when it goes out into the cytoplasm, that's usually bad news. Um, similar to Alzheimer's disease, there's this um, incredible microtubule binding protein called tau. And that forms aggregates in the cytoplasm in Alzheimer's disease when, when they're, and that, that's what causes the problem. And if you take those aggregates and in, in like, um, in the lab and, and put them on top of perfectly healthy cells, those cells actually get worse. Hmm. The same thing happens with TDP43. Um, so, so that's sort of interesting, but it happens normally with age. Um, in Alzheimer's disease, you get some of these aggregates forming in the cytoplasm. And in ALS, 
when you have mutations in PDP43, you get tons of aggregates in the cytoplasm. So um, this aggregation phenomenon is sort of, um, it actually happens normally with this protein in the nucleus. It's just when it goes out of the nucleus, it becomes a problem. So we're actually really interested to see, is it using actin and microtubule roads to get out of the nucleus? And does the dynamics of the actin and microtubules change um, when this protein gets out, you know, and is now present in the cytoplasm? Is that what makes you really sick? And then on top of it, TDP43 and profilin are like best friends. They directly interact. And it seems that Profilin doesn't really form aggregates on its own, but when it's there with PDP43, it, it makes even more aggregation, like way more of it. And we've seen that in the test tube, and we've also seen it in cells. So could there potentially be a way to turn this TDP thing into a, a way to treat some of these neurodegenerative diseases? Right. So, like, that would be the goal, right? Um, either to use PDP43 or possibly profilin as a target for, um, for a therapeutic would be a really good idea. PDP43 is a pretty big protein. It might be a little bit challenging because it's involved in a lot of things that the cell does. But I even think if we could somehow target the interaction between PDP43 and this profilin thing that's basically like a rheostat, right, or like the thermostat in your house, it's like turning things up or turning it down. With other proteins that, that form aggregates, for some some reason, this protein is like a convergence point. And sometimes it, it makes bigger aggregates, but fewer of them. We don't even know if bigger aggregates is worse than, like, more smaller aggregates, right? So, like, even knowing that would be of interest to this field, right? Well, I appreciate you sharing your research with us. Thank you so much to Dr. Jessica Hinty Rodella. She's an assistant professor of cell and developmental biology and of biochemistry and molecular biology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on HealthLink on Air, the potential for the retina to regenerate. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from a visiting professor about the progress being made in the research of eye disease. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Abigail Hackham, a professor of ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. She's in Syracuse to give a lecture at Upstate, and she made time to do this podcast. So welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Hackham. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Now, your lab focuses on research of new cures for diseases and injuries to the retina. And before I ask you to tell us more, can you describe where the retina is, what it does? Sure. So the retina is at the back of the eye, and it's essential for vision. So if you think about it as a camera, the retina would be the film that uh, receives the light and allows us to see. Of course, it works with the brain in order to give us the images that we perceive. So is it part of the eye or is it part of the nervous system? Both, actually. Oh, both. Okay. Yes, it's, uh, the retina is an offshoot of the brain. So a lot of the things that can go wrong in the brain can also go wrong in the retina. So some people, including ourselves, study the retina to actually understand how the brain works. So what are the problems or the diseases that affect this part of the eye that your lab is involved in researching? So there's a family of diseases called retinal degenerations, and these are diseases that affect the nerve cells called photoreceptors, and they lead to loss of vision and oftentimes um, complete blindness. So they're quite serious diseases and quite common, in fact. So with things like macular degeneration, macular, is that one of them? Yes, okay. macular degeneration is one of them, and that affects around the third of the population over the age of 65. Wow. Now, are these um, inherited diseases, or are they diseases that develop with age? Right. Also both. So some of these diseases, um, an example would be um, a 
congenital night blindness or retinitis pigmentosa, those are inherited, and those would be evident in children. Some of the other diseases, such as macular degeneration, is age-associated. Now, if the retina is damaged by one of these diseases, is it able to regenerate or grow back? Right. So only if you're a fish or a newt or a salamander. In humans and mammals in general, unfortunately, it cannot grow back on its own. And so what we're trying to do is stimulate um, the body's ability to regrow or to protect a retina. So it doesn't naturally, it can't naturally it on its own. not naturally, unfortunately. Um, you mentioned three different animals, newt or what? How did we discover that they had the ability to regenerate? Has <laughs> right. that been known for a while? It's been known for a while. Um, maybe a serendipity. You know, people were studying those animals for a long time. It was an observation that they made. And now, of course, understanding how other animals uh, regenerate, perhaps we can learn from that and apply it to our own research. In these animal models, when the retina regenerates, is it as good as the original retina? Um, in many cases, it is, yes. So there's hope that the, maybe we would hope. be able to... Yes. Okay, yeah. interesting. Well, what approaches is your lab investigating? So one of the primary approaches is to... Um, use a type of growth factor that we know is important in the development of the eye in the embryo, and we're trying to repurpose that in the adult. And so we're trying to see, you know, since it works to tell the retina to become a retina in the first place, maybe it can do it after injury. So that's a major focus of ours. Interesting. Have you found... I mean, you it, must have some promise yes, if you're going yes, down that pathway. Yeah, but. for sure. So it does seem to help. So we can, um, at least in an animal model, we can regrow an optic nerve, which is very exciting. Um, now our, our biggest focus is can we enhance that regrowth so that it can make connections with the brain? Because that's ultimately what we need, right? So if it's only the retina regrowing, it's not as helpful if it can't communicate with the brain. So optic nerve, is that how the retina connect, connects to the brain? the brain, yes. Okay, so that's a very important nerve. Yes, to... definitely. Okay. Um, what other approaches have you looked into? So we have a really interesting um, research project where we're looking at different dietary interventions. And and diet is, is nice as a... a an aid or a supplement to pharmaceuticals, you know, because people can easily change their diet, well, hopefully easily, more easily than taking a pill. And so we've actually found that um, a diet that was supplemented with these uh, free, freeze-dried grape powder was able to protect the retina completely in an animal model of photoreceptor degeneration. So this was a, a model of one of these inherited diseases. So freeze-dried grape Grape powder, powder? grape, the fruit? The fruit. So it's a mixture of red and black and white grapes, stems and seeds, freeze-dried, biochemically defined. And we supplemented the animal's diet with that, and they had complete retinal protection. So it's very exciting. So I eat a lot of grapes, based (laughs) on my research. So what made you think grapes would have any sort of powerful... Yeah, so there's a lot of literature about grapes and cardiovascular health. So we know the story about red wine. Resveratrol, right? Yes, resveratrol, exactly. And so resveratrol is only one component of grapes. There's a lot of different components. They're called uh, phytochemicals, which are basically um, compounds within plants. And they have beneficial properties. They've been shown to be anti-inflammatory or antioxidants, all these type of things. And so when they're all together in the grape powder, we're seeing a benefit. Whereas individual chemicals in isolation doesn't seem to work as well. Wow. Well, that is interesting. So once you've shown this in an animal, uh, then you've also got to take the next step to work on it in humans, right? In humans, exactly, yeah. So we're trying to... um, determine what would be the optimal dose and and all those type of considerations. In the animals, it was equivalent to two and a half servings of grapes, which and the serving is three quarters of a cup. So, you know, it's not an unreasonable amount of grapes, mm-hmm. but that was in the animal. So translating that to humans, we'd have to really work that out. But, but I think grapes are easy to eat and 
nutritious. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Abigail Hackham from the University of Miami. She's a scientist who focuses on genetics and ophthalmology, and she's visiting Syracuse to give a lecture at Upstate on retinal regeneration. So your lab is also looking at inflammation, is that correct? Yes, yes. So what does that have to do with regeneration or repair of the retina? Yeah, so inflammation is getting a lot of attention in the scientific community these days. And we know a whole host of diseases have links to inflammation, ranging from Alzheimer's disease to even autism to retinal degenerations. And it turns out that inflammation can have some beneficial effects as well as some um, negative effects to the eye. So what we're trying to do is enhance the beneficial effects and suppress the more toxic negative effects. So it might have the effect of helping a retina stay healthy? Yes, yes, oh. so that's our goal. And in fact, what we found is that we can add a, a very um, low-dose anti-inflammatory drug, and it can boost these beneficial inflammatory cells. Interesting. So you mentioned the grapes, too, but I, I'm just wondering, how would regeneration help people who've already lost their vision? Or would it? Would you, would we ever, do you ever foresee that we would get to a point where a person who's lost their vision through detachment or a disease would have some remedy for that? Right, right. So ideally, um, we would be able to help a patient early in the degenerative process. And, and that's why in this getting eye exams on the regular basis and doing these type of screenings, which are so important to see any early stages, especially if you have a pre-existing condition like diabetes, for example. In terms of a later stage disease process, um, the field is now moving into replacement. And so this would be replacement of um, new cells that can actually be inserted back into the eye. It's all experimental um, at this stage or even an artificial retina, which is huh. uh, an electrode array. And some of these are in use, um, you know, not highly effective yet, but a huge push to make Definitely these work being better. looked at. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I know you also explore genetics, so I'd like to ask you about the role you think gene therapy may play in preventing or, or curing diseases or injuries. Yeah, so, I mean, the forefront of a lot of this research is genetics, and so... In my lab, we do some gene therapy in the animals, um, but more recent data in um, the clinical setting, people have been using small non-pathogenic viruses to deliver genes to replace the genes that are mutated or absent in patients. And the first results are coming out. They're recently reported from a group in um, Pennsylvania in collaboration with other other institutions, and there's a beneficial effect on some of these patients, which is very exciting. So you first have to find out if uh, if they've got a vision deficiency, if, yes. if there's a genetic exactly. reason for it. Exactly. And now that we know the whole human genome has been completely sequenced, um, so it's not hugely complicated to identify the genetic defect these days. It used to be more challenging. Now it's cheaper and faster to find that out. Now, what about, I've heard of something called CRISPR. Uh, yeah. What is that? So CRISPR is a very exciting technology where you can actually, they, they refer to it as molecular scissors. So um, without getting into the technical details, they can actually replace the mutation with the normal DNA sequence. And so instead of having a drug, they actually change the mutation back to normal in the first place. So now that's been tested experimentally. So there's been um, a clinical trial where they have removed cells from the body. An example was with sickle cell disease, where they removed the cells, did CRISPR to remove the mutation, and delivered the cells back to the patient. So they basically fixed the defect fixed and then the defect. put it back. Yes. But huh. this past week, they announced that there was finally a study that was approved to begin to do CRISPR within the human body. So not removing the cells, actually putting the CRISPR um, mechanism into the eye to fix the mutation in the patient's eye. So they're doing this as part of a collaboration with several different companies, looking at 18 patients for wow. safety and efficacy. So if there is um, therapeutic benefit, this will revolutionize the way that we approach 
genes and diseases and therapy. It's a very exciting time. So if this were to work, you would identify patients that are having problems with yes. their vision, and then this would they would be brought in, and this would yes. help fix that yes, or exactly. reverse it. Exactly. So how long do you think uh, some of the work that you're doing in the lab, how long would it take before it is ready for patient use? So that's a good question. It's a question that I hear a lot. <laughs> I get that a lot, and I ask myself the same question. So something like the grapes. So that's an immediate benefit. You know, we haven't done a clinical study for that, but it's something that it's a dietary intervention. And so grapes are not going to hurt you. Not unless you're diabetic or allergic, right? So in general, for the average person, grapes will not hurt you. For a more molecular therapeutic, um, it takes longer. So the average length of time that's usually stated is 15 years. And if you think about it, it's basically the amount of time is because of safety concerns. So we need to test it in multiple animal models and then do what's called a phase one clinical trial and a phase two clinical trial, phase three. And those phases are for looking at small patient populations and testing safety and then efficacy. So, so to make people. sure that it works, number one, but then yeah. that it's not doing other sorts of damage exactly. or something. Exactly. One of the advantages for working in the eye is that the system is set up very nicely for clinical trials. So oftentimes we treat one eye and leave the other eye untreated. And so we can see if, there's, if the treatment actually is causing further damage or having a protective effect or no effect. So we just compare to the fellow eye. Um, another case is that the delivery of drugs to the eye is much easier than really for most anything else. Eye drops, as an example. Oh. It's really easy, um, non-invasive way to deliver drugs. So it's a little bit faster to bring drugs to treatment um, in the eye, but it still takes a long time. And, you know, if you have a disease like this, you know, you want things to happen faster, of course. But of course. We're working as hard as we can. And in the meantime, grapes, eating grapes may help keep your retina healthy. Right, yes. Well, good yes. to know. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Abigail Hackam, a professor of ophthalmology at the University of Miami's Bascom Palmer Eye Institute. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Stay with HealthLink on Air for a look at the Happy Period Project. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may be familiar with clothing drives designed to help the poor and the homeless, but today we'll meet a pair of Upstate students who are sisters who've begun a project specifically to help women and teens who are poor or homeless. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio are Madison Searles, who's a first-year public health student at Upstate, and Quinn Searles, who is a second-year physician assistant student, both at Upstate Medical University. Welcome both of you to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So let's talk about this, how Happy Period got its start. That's the name of your project, hashtag Happy Period, right? Yeah. So tell us about it. So Quinn? hashtag Happy Period uh, was started by Chelsea Von Chaz in the Bay Area of California, I think about in 2015. And we ended up finding it through Instagram online, just through her social media. We discovered this mission of hers. And um, she basically, back in the day, uh, Chelsea Von Chaz was driving through Hollywood and she saw a woman experiencing homelessness walking down the street with a stain on her pants from period blood. And Chelsea was um, alerted to the fact that we aren't donating very frequently menstrual products to people who are in need. So she started this community where we're regularly thinking of that. And the name Happy Period, where does that do you know how she came up with that? No, I don't. Oh, okay. So you uh, started sort of a Syracuse chapter yes. of this same. So how did you get that started? We just reached out and communicated with 
Chelsea's group and they kind of guided us through the process and then we took it from there and have been just doing what we can each day. <laughs> so practically speaking, how does this work? Do you, are you looking for donations from people? How, how does it, how do you go about getting this together? Um, right, so we have, we post a lot of our information on social media. That's how we communicate with people mostly. So you have an um, Instagram? Yep, we have what's, an Instagram. What's your handle? It's at uh, We Are Happy Period Syracuse. And then we have a Facebook as well. Um, and so we commu communicate with people through our Instagram and Facebook. Um, and we host packing parties where we gather these donations. People will bring a, don a donation of a menstrual hygiene product. Um, and then we will set up an assembly line and go through packing the kits. And then we will take it from there and distribute them um, to the community through our beneficiaries. So what's in these kits? Uh, pads, tampons? Right, yep. So we, every kit um, or every kind of series of kits is a little bit different depending on the donations that we get. But we try to stick to around five to seven tampons, five to seven pads, five to seven liners. Um, we include hygiene wipes um, and... And underwear? And then on a clean pair of, un of new underwear. Um, and then we usually include just a little bit of information about us so someone can contact us if they need to and an encouraging note. So how do you get these kits into the hands of the women that need them? Um, so we have different beneficiaries that we donate to. Our, our biggest beneficiary is uh, We Rise Above the Streets. So Alameen Muhammad has been amazing and he takes our kits and takes them out to the streets of Syracuse on his um, Sandwich Saturdays. So that's a really great way for us to meet people exactly where they are. Uh, we know that the kits are going right to where people are already gathering um, and finding some products that they may need. So it's, it's a great way uh, for us to meet people where they are and get them into people's hands that way. Have you met any of the women that have received these kits? Have you gotten any feedback from the people that this is helping? Um, so we've gotten feedback through our beneficiaries. Um, and then we've also handed out kits to people that we've come across. Maybe when we're driving down the street, we um, might offer one to someone and say, do you have a need for this? And if they accept, um, that's kind of a way for us to interact with people as well. Um, yeah, another portion of our distribution is that we encourage people who come to our events to, you know, we're all hanging out at our packing parties, um, kind of talking about menstrual equity, having snacks, listening to music, packing kits. And at the end, we say, we're going to bring these to We Rise Above the Streets, but if you have any um, interaction with anyone in need, take them and donate them yourself. So we also encourage everybody along our like volunteer path to donate and so, you know, if you see someone on your commute regularly, um, anybody out there could throw together some products and give them to them. You use the term menstrual equity. What do you mean by that? Um, menstrual equity is... Do you have an answer? Yeah, so we think <laughs> that everyone should have equitable access to these products, um, whether they can afford them or not. It's something that is so needed and allows you to have dignity and go about your normal daily life. Um, so whether you can afford to go to the store and buy a box of tampons or pads or not, we think that everyone should have access to the products so that their daily lives are not hindered, so that girls can continue going to school, um, women can not feel like they have to hide during that time of the month, um, especially if someone is experiencing homelessness can pose a lot of issues for them if they're not able to take care of this. Um, so yeah, we think that it should be equitable, equitable access to menstrual hygiene products. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Madison Searles. She's a first-year public health student at Upstate, and her sister, Quinn Searles, who's a second-year physician assistant student, both at Upstate Medical University, about the project they began in Syracuse recently called Happy Period Syracuse. So let's talk about uh, how do you go about convincing people, men especially, that this is something that matters, that it's important. Have you had trouble 
getting people on board? Um, so we just try to have open conversation about it. And people who are interested are eager to jump in. Um, and then there's people who seem to be a little bit more hesitant at times, but just having open conversation, I think, makes the topic a little bit more normal. <clears throat> That's a big goal, is to destigmatize all of this and kind of break the taboo surrounding menstruation so that it's something that can be talked about more easily. Um, so our approach is just to have open conversation with people. Um, we're not ashamed to hang our flyers places and to post our drop boxes and post on our Instagram and stuff like that. And we're just excited with every new follower we get, every new, um, all the new interests. It's, it's awesome. And we think that the word will hopefully spread that way and people will become more comfortable as more conversation surrounds the topic. Well, you're both going into healthcare fields. Is that why you feel comfortable trying to break the taboo around menstruation? Do you think that that um, helps? Yeah, I think there's a mix. I think we're comfortable with physiology, but we also, um, throughout our whole lives, have, even before our professional lives, have been uh, in an environment where we're able to talk about menstruation and sort of more on the social side, it hasn't been as taboo for us. So we're fortunate mm -hmm. in that regard and we want to sort of spread that. Do you think mm -hmm. that's a generational thing? Do you think that younger women growing up are just more open about their periods? I think that's, a, that's there's an aspect of that, but mm -hmm. we also definitely, if you look around, we definitely know a lot of people who do have a lot of shame around their periods who are our age. Mm -hmm. So I think our generation maybe more um, freed from that than prior generations, but there still is a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. In putting this project together, what have you learned um, yourselves that you can take away from having launched this project that on a ta taboo subject? Are there lessons that you can take away from this? Um, I think we're excited to see a lot of the interest that we've been getting recently. So I've learned that if you kind of put yourself out there and you believe in something that there will be there will be people who are also interested in the same thing and who can who will surround you and help you with it. So that's been really exciting mm -hmm. to see how we've put ourselves out there in the, our community and it has risen up and kind of helped us with that. So it's it's cool to see how the community has come together with us and the support that we've gotten. So were you nervous You've, when you uh, hosted your first packing party? I, oh, yeah. I imagine you yeah. put posters up and, you know, asked all your friends and did mm -hmm. all the social media trying to get people to come. But did you know people would show up? No. Yeah, no. I think we're nervous every time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, how many people yeah. is it going to be this time? When we first started, we debated for many hours and days, do we think this is going to work? Are people yeah. actually going to show up or is mm -hmm. this going to be us? Um, kind of scrambling for donations and then it's going to dissipate but we found the opposite to be true so that's very encouraging yeah. but yeah every time there is a little bit of a question um, do people you know see the need do they care do they want to show up well good well you've each chosen careers that are kind of focused on helping people so I want to ask you Madison what do you envision yourself doing with a master's of public health so I'm figuring that out still right now. <laughs> um, I'm really excited by a lot of the things that I'm learning. Um, I'm considering a global health focus. So that's kind of the direction I'm heading right now. And Quinn, what drew you to become a physician assistant? Um, being a PA is awesome. Mm -hmm. I love that I can practice medicine independently, but also with uh, lateral mobility throughout the fields. And... Um, I just love learning about physiology and working with people. So how can people get involved if they're listening to this podcast? How can they go about helping this cause? So we have an Amazon wish list, which is probably the easiest way for people to donate. So if they follow our Instagram or Facebook, they can find the link to our Amazon wish list. On so let's say again um, on Instagram, it's um, we are happy period Syracuse. Right. Yep. And then uh, hashtag happy period Syracuse on Twitter. Um, Facebook, Facebook is we are happy hashtag happy period series. Okay. Yep. Right. Um, so the link can be found there, and that's just a simple way for people to um, go online. They can see our list of needed products, and then if they order something, it will be sent directly to us. So 
It's probably the simplest way. Um, also, people can pick up an extra box of pads, tampons, wipes, um, underwear, any of our needed products while they're at the store, and that can be brought to one of our packing parties. Um, again, follow our social media because we post those announcements on there. So, that's so you give people a few weeks' notice of when the packing yep. party and where the packing party is going to be. Exactly. Somewhere yep. in the Syracuse area? Yep, we try to make it very. Um, very central so that people can walk there if they need to take a bus drive um just somewhere easy for people to access what would be your biggest area of need do you do you need volunteers or do you need uh, materials right so our donations are probably our biggest need um and as far as donations go we're usually very short on hygiene wipes um a lot of people don't realize the need for those so People experiencing homelessness may not have access to clean water, so we try to provide hygiene wipes so that they can adequately clean up during this time. And then also underwear are often underdonated, so always, um, if you're interested, be on the lookout for sales. You can get pretty cheap underwear, um, like at Walmart or even TJ Maxx, um, places like that. So. Those are our two most needed donations. Um, and as far as overall, yeah, the donations are definitely the most needed. So, And I would add um, the need is always to spread the word. Exactly, so yeah. if, you, if you hear about us, you think it's interesting, tell somebody. Um, alert people in your life to the need of uh, products for people who might not have them. So just keep talking about it. Keep talking about periods in general, but also about periods in poverty. So what do you envision happening to Happy Period Syracuse after you both graduate? Um, It will continue to grow. (laughs) We don't see this as a school project. It's more of a community and um, just life project for us. So it's not going anywhere. You have other people involved um, as passionately as you are? Yeah, we do. We have a lot of um, friends and new people that we're meeting along the way who are totally on board with helping in any way possible. And we're excited to keep meeting more of those people. So we have a really good community around this and we hope it continues to grow. Thank you to public health student Madison Searles and physician assistant student Quinn Searles. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Kim Welliver lives and writes in Utah, where she works in the field of special education. Her poem, A Micro Deletion of 4P, describes in precise and rich imagery a prenatal diagnosis and its effect on the mother-to-be. At 27 weeks, our prenatal geneticist advises acceptance, acceptance from ad capari, to grasp or take, which itself is from captine, to gulp or swallow. Although who would choose microcephaly, micronathia, hypertellerism, ectrodactyly? Microcephalic, skull a fist-sized grapefruit, rind and seed, skull a wizened plum. Micronathic, jaw like a broken hinge, half-formed eggshell, strawberry chin. Hypertellerism, eye sockets in disparate hemispheres, bone orbits wide set as a toddler's hand span. Ectrodactyly, hand split as the claw of a green mud crab, pincer cleft palms, fingers bent as locust legs. Acceptance, from the Sanskrit, kapati meaning two handfuls. Acceptance from the old Irish kasht, meaning servant girl, captive, slave. Acceptance is to own a thing completely. To own, meaning fraught, freight, ought, owe. To own, when the moon dims to a smudge of talc, a child, damp with sleep, small animal heat, stirs, sighs, my heart's glad leap. Cameron Morse, who survived a glioblastoma, lives with his wife Lily and son Theodore in Blue Springs, Missouri. 
His poem, Chemo Baby, is a delightful success story. Might not want to rush into that, your radiologist says, late evening light casting the dark shape of your house east over the side yard. My year-old Theo runs barefoot across the creased's cul-de-sac, turns and runs back calling, Daddy! Sparrows chirrup atop the sun-crested yew, golden in the glare. They say the world is ending, entering the throes of mass extinction. Wind dog-ears my knocked-off moleskin. Theo scoots down the piebald slope, reverses and crawls back up. Maybe the last light is the one we clutch to the bosom, the one that falls askance. Theo patters to the gritty edge of the driveway, stands at the precipice. With fear and trembling, my wife and I conceived him. Our cryobank destroyed my uncontaminated specimen. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a transplant surgeon finds a way to minimize complications after kidney transplants. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.